0: a brand new series entitled Firm Foundation and uh, as you can see on the slide here behind me these are the topics there are nine that we are going to cover over a period of nine weeks and the first three are really, uh, these are laid out intentionally in terms of the idea of a foundation and building off of that. So even though that entire thing represents a foundation, knowing God, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit are what I would consider the foundation of the foundation. We, you've got to know those three <clears throat> and be acquainted with those three to have a firm foundation in anything else. And, and so then we're going to build from there on love and the incarnation and law and grace, the church, stewardship, and prayer. As you're looking at those subjects, you might say to yourself, well, this is interesting. First of all, each one of these deserves nine weeks and not just 35 minutes, and uh, that is certainly true. There's no way that we can give you an in-depth understanding of all nine of those subjects in 35 minutes a week for nine weeks. They truly deserve a series, each of them. So my intention here, though, is to give you a 40,000-foot view of each of these subjects, and to share them from the standpoint of... um, enough information and enough revelation which i'm really praying the holy spirit will give you so that you can lock in so that you can key in and say okay i understand that i understand the importance of that to my christian walk and and i get what god is saying what what are we doing here my my wife is okay is that good better all right Let, let me know whenever i need to do that See, these, these are the, this is why it's good to be married if you're in ministry. See, these, are, these aren't things... Oh, you haven't been using the paddle. We introduced the paddle a long time ago, yes. So out of these nine subjects, you, you certainly could also be saying to yourself, Well, where's Jesus? <laughs> I mean, isn't he kind of important to the foundation? And where would be the subject of faith? as important as faith is. And here's what I want to say to you about those two subjects. First of all, it is my intention in sharing about these nine subjects to show you that all of them really point to Jesus. They're really all about Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul, when writing in the book of Corinthians about love, and he... He stated something that really is... uh, It's one of his greatest statements ever. He said, And now abideth faith, hope, and love. Do you remember that? But the greatest of these is not faith, which some have made it, but it's love. And so, actually, faith works by love, Paul said. So in discussing faith... And in discussing, excuse me, love, and in discussing the Holy Spirit and the Bible and all of these things, your faith is going to grow, and you're also going to be able to lock into a greater measure of faith than you've ever had before. So all nine of these subjects will be talking about faith in some way, and all nine of them will lead you to a greater understanding and appreciation of Jesus, who is our foundation, okay well uh, I'm not Jeff I will not be obviously doing any slides I will not be controlling that I am beholding to you and so I want to quote something at the very beginning of our uh, talk today we're going to talk about the Bible God's scandalous message the Bible from the beginning I want to quote something from Francois Dutois. You've heard that name before? He is the author of the Mirror Bible. And I might say that as I as I start my study here with you in my talk, I've got a lot to get through in just the first 10 minutes. And so I know that some of you are probably going to say slow down. <laughs> I will make my notes available to anybody that would like them for your review if you find that you're just, you know, we've had to move along so fast that you weren't able to get some things, okay? But uh, for me to get to where I want to go, I've really got to move quickly here. Francois, quote, The Bible is a dangerous book. It has confused and divided more people than any other document. Yet... Its profound and simple message continues to appeal, overwhelm, and transform the lives of multitudes of men and women of any age or culture. It is still the bestseller on the planet. Scriptures have been used to justify some of the greatest atrocities in human history. People were tortured, burned at the stake, and multitudes murdered based on somebody's understanding of the scriptures. Jesus, Paul, and believers throughout the ages face their greatest opposition from those who knew the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? If it is such a dangerous document, how does one approach this book? What is the key that unlocks the mystery of the message? Did that one work okay? All right. Well, so give us just a moment. We'll actually be able to have the slides here, and that will be awesome. Could we get Robert, would you mind helping uh, Chad lift that up onto the stage? Um, It's a thing. We can't leave it down on the floor for the live stream. Wow, look at all this work we are going through for you. the live stream, not for everybody here, we're doing this for you, <laughs> that's awesome, that's awesome, yeah, no, that's all right, yeah, it sits up high, but that's okay, oh, oh, I see, that one's higher than the other one, isn't it, or put it on the floor, so should we just put it on the floor then, oh, you're going to lower it. Aren't these guys amazing? <laughs> what they can do? Yeah, you'll want to go keep going down. Oh, okay. Never mind. We'll, we'll be good. We'll be good. You still think it ought to be on the floor, hon? Okay. Can? Okay. All right, we're good. Let's do that. Is it, so, camera guy, I, I, real, what it really amounts to is what's good for for the camera guy, and so that our live stream audience can see it. Are we are we okay there, or would you prefer it on the floor? You'd prefer it on the floor, Jim. Let's do this one more time. Thank you, Robert. Boy, when we get this all set up, it's gonna be good. <laughs> The, I mean, this message is something. Good. Yeah. Okay. So, to, uh, so I even have this, don't I? Wow. Wow. That's amazing. The key that unlocks this incredible book, this dangerous document, is how you understand it and how you think about it. It it, it, it is a mystery. It's supposed to be a mystery. We're not supposed to understand everything about it clearly without exceptions, without doubt. That's never been required. The romance of the ages is revealed here in this book the romance of the ages is revealed here the heart of the lover our maker is hidden in scripture and it's uncovered in the pages of this book God said in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 1 I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me I said here I am here I am Isn't that a great scripture? I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. That's love language. See, you see what I mean? God pursues even the unbeliever. God pursues those who do not pursue him. And that's really what this Bible is all about. When the Bible is interpreted and then taught as a book of doctrine a mere instructional manual for moral behavior. Its message is legal and irrelevant. Instead, the Bible is meant to be a revelation of a scandalous message of how God reconciled all humanity back to himself and brought heaven to earth. So real quick, how did we get the Bible? I'm going to give you nine key points here. First of all, the Bible is inspired by God. We're told that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 1. Here those scriptures are. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Your Bible, in its original writing, is the product of the Holy Spirit speaking God's heart and God's mind. Is that incredible? Is that incredible that here we have God's heart God's mind. Isn't that awesome. The Bible is made up of sixty six different books that were written over sixteen hundred years by more than forty kings, prophets, leaders, and followers of Jesus. The Old Testament has thirty-nine books. The New Testament has twenty-seven books. The Hebrew Bible has the same text as the English Bible's Old Testament, but divides and arranges itself differently. The Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew, with some Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. The books of the Bible were collected and arranged and recognized as inspired sacred authority by councils of rabbis and councils of church leaders based on careful guidelines and comment that I want to make about that. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa at Hippo Regis in 393 and at Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. All the way back to the 300s. Those councils decided on the 66 books that would be in this book that we call our Bible. Before the printing press was invented, the Bible was copied by hand. The Bible was copied very accurately, in many cases, by special scribes who developed intricate methods of counting words and letters to ensure that no errors had been made. Now, this was not part-time work. These scribes lived this. This was their full-time job and career, and it was their passion to do this. They were paid to do this. The Bible was the first book ever printed on the printing press with movable type. Did you know that? The Bible was the first book ever printed on Gutenberg's press with movable type in 1455. There's much evidence that the Bible we have today is remarkably true, remarkably true to the original writings of the thousands of copies made by hand before 1500 A.D., more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts from the New Testament alone still exist today. The text of the Bible is better preserved than the writings of Caesar, Plato, and Aristotle. And none of those received the scrutiny and the disbelief and the dismissal and all of the attacks against their writings that they must be untrue because they, we don't have the original writings, all we have is manuscripts, the manuscripts were copied and then translated and then recopied. None of those guys get that. And yet, for the Bible, we have 5,300 Greek manuscripts on the New Testament alone. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now get this, because uh, you don't hear this in school. So those of you that are younger, special attention paid. And to all of the adults, I would imagine, you may not know of this discovery. In 1946-47... Called the Dead Sea Scrolls, confirming the astonishing reliability of some of the copies of the Old Testament made over the years. Although some spelling variations exist, no variation affects basic Bible doctrines. Now get this. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Hebrew language manuscripts of the Bible were Masoretic texts dating to the 10th century CE. The biblical manuscripts found among the Dead Sea Scrolls push that date back a full thousand years to the second century BCE. This was a significant discovery for Old Testament scholars who anticipated that the Dead Sea Scrolls would either affirm or repudiate the reliability of textual transmission from the original text. The the discovery demonstrated the unusual accuracy of transmission over a thousand year period, rendering it reasonable to believe that current Old Testament texts are reliable copies of the original works. Imagine that. God waited till 1947 to have some shepherds, Bedouin shepherds, goofing around and searching through caves in Israel and Jordan, discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which gave us the ability to go back a thousand more years than the very latest manuscripts we had at that time. Do you realize what that's saying? A thousand years, a window to look back, a thousand additional years back into history because of these Dead Sea Scrolls and all of them confirming that what we have today is reliable, authentic, translated carefully, thoroughly and meticulously accurate. By AD 200, the Bible was translated into seven languages. Today, we now have God's revelation in our own language, and in 2300 languages, too. Today, we have the very Bible that comes to us from the three languages, that would be Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, used in the original. Truly, we can say, God speaks my language. (laughs) God speaks my language. I submit to you this morning that the Bible is a story, not a manual. It's a progressive revelation of God's creation, of God's redemption, and of his love for humanity. I asked a good friend of mine who's a Hebrew scholar to give me his take on the differences between the fundamental difference between the Old and New Testament. He said, Jeff, the Old Testament is seen as unchangeable law and revelations of the living spirit. But the New Testament is seen solely as living spirit never to be taken as law. And yet we've taken the New Testament and turned it into a new Torah. Most Christians will agree we're not subject to the law, we're not subject to the old Torah, but then we've taken the New Testament and just turned it into a new Torah, a book of law, not a story of the ages coming to us by Redeemer God, Creator God, Here is uh, just a, a quick look at how the Bible breaks down. You have the law, you have history, poetry, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the gospels, the history, one, one book in the New Testament that we would classify as history being the book of Acts, the epistles to the churches, epistles to friends, and general letters over two-thirds of the New Testament written by one person. His name was Paul. And we're told that all scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Over the last several days, I dutifully searched, studied Thinking this, one of my most important messages, especially for this series. It was important to me to be able to defend my thoughts and my position on this subject of the Bible. And then I realized that I was falling into the same trap that I have often fallen into through the years with so many different things that I have taught and studied. And that's the trap of wanting to be right. Does anybody identify with that? Some of you, and this isn't a slap, I just want you to know, some of you don't care very much about being right. You kind of go with the flow. You know, you're very easygoing. You've never really locked in to absolutes, okay? You're very forgiving that way. Probably especially those of you with a mercy motive. I've never been given to mercy, (laughs) and that's kind of important for a pastor, you know, to be merciful. It was far more important for me to be right. You know what I mean? Now, some of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you'd make good lawyers. It's really important for you to be right. And I found myself in this study. I I wanted to bring the word of God to you. And, and, And there is few subjects more important than the one we are about to approach and I wanted to be right on it. And then I realized to argue position regarding this next subject was to dip into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I decided that for those of you who really want to study the subject of inerrancy, there's plenty of material available and I'd be happy to speak to you about it. But here's what I will say about it. I have a paper this morning that I have copied off from my good friend. We're not going to hand it out just yet because I only have a few copies. Because I I figured, again, some of you with your mercy motive and you don't care about being right, you're not going to take copies of the paper. But for some of you that really want to study the subject of inerrancy, whether the Bible is inerrant, this paper will be important to you. Again, I looked to my Hebrew scholar friend and I asked him for his thoughts on inerrancy. So he wrote a white paper. A position paper on the subject. I have copies of that for the few of you that would like a copy. And then I will say of myself from my own self the following. We have a propensity for labeling anything we don't understand as wrong. If it differs from the way we were taught the Bible or from the way we read our Bible, then feelings can get very intense. Labels like deception and heresy easily form on our lips. And I reject such labels as representative of a careful, well-studied, faithful representation of the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth. Now, there are individuals who will say that if you question the integrity or the translation of a particular passage or story in the Bible, you question the very integrity of the Bible itself, all of the the entire Bible, and you cause it to be untrustworthy. I have sat with individuals who have heard me teach on such subjects over the last six to nine months and had them tell me to my face. That comment, that message puts you in a place of questioning the entire integrity of the Bible. And I thought, wow, I love my Bible. I'm a conservative, evangelical, tongue talking, spirit filled, Bible believing believer, follower of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, because I take a different position from some on certain subjects, I now question the entire authenticity of the Bible. I passionately disagree, as do a large majority of scholarly, godly, spirit-filled men and women, Bible students, teachers, pastors, and theologians, that if you question the integrity or translation of a particular passage you, 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 you call into question the authenticity of the entire Bible. The, I want to affirm the following with a promise that in the not-too-distant future, I plan this year sometime to conduct an entire series of messages on this great subject of the Bible and its inerrancy. First of all, the Bible is the inspired word of God. In its original writing, it is inspired, it's infallible, and it is inerrant. That's number one. Number two, the challenge that we encounter today is the issue of translation and interpretive premise. Most of us agree on what the Bible says. We disagree on what the Bible means. Neither the King James translation of the Bible or any other translation is exclusively, quote, the Word of God. No translation of the Bible that you can hold in your hands today is perfect, inerrant, or infallible. While this collection of 66 books called the Bible, is not in itself perfect. It perfectly points us to the one who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. I want you to remember these words. John chapter 5, verse 39. You are busy analyzing the scriptures, frantically poring over them in hopes of gaining eternal life. Everything you read points to me. Now, that's Jesus speaking. Is it possible that we have created a a, a monster? Is it possible that we've turned this book into the most dangerous book by having to be right and be legal and be just and be all of that? When God meant it to be his love story, to reveal his character and his nature, he never wanted us to turn it into the thing that we've done with it. And Jesus himself to the legalists, to the hypocrites, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were legal scholars, scriptural scholars, knew the Bible backwards and forwards, in his day, he stood there and he said, you search the scriptures constantly, dutifully, frantically pouring over them, and you miss me. You miss me because look at this. Here's the message translation of that. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, and here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life that you say you want. Dear ones, listen to me. When when we think word of God, we must not think first. Listen carefully. When we think word of God, we must not think first the Bible. We must think first about Jesus. He is the logos of God that became flesh in John chapter 1. He is the living word of God. The Bible is the word of God in a secondary way, one which is meant to point us to Jesus. No translation of our precious Bible is the way, the truth, and the life. Only Jesus holds that title. To place the translation of Scripture on an equal level as the risen Christ is to substitute its idolatry. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Finally, and I'm going to move on now. I'm, I'm still commenting about inerrancy and the scripture, and I didn't want to be legal with it. I didn't want to defend and operate out the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I felt like you deserved some comment from from me about inerrancy. Finally, this is important. I reject a flat reading of the Bible this is a concept of reading the Bible in a manner that assumes every passage and every individual verse in the Bible is true and has equal relevance weight authority and literalness what am I talking about Job chapter 1 verse 21 the Lord gives and the Lord takes away how many of you know it's true Job said that but that is not true I'm not here this morning to teach on the subject of suffering. It's true, Job said that. It's truly recorded, but that is not true. That is not a true statement about what happened to Job and what God did with Job. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's Jesus teaching While he's still under the Old Testament law, he has not died, he has not been buried, he has not risen from the dead. But that statement, your father will not forgive you your sins if you don't forgive others, is a law statement. It no longer applies post the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it's true, if you don't forgive others... I mean, it's like a cancer. It will eat away at your life. It will absolutely destroy your life on this earth if you let it go. But it is not true that the Father doesn't forgive your sins unless you forgive somebody else's. To say so goes absolutely, flatly contrary to the teaching of Paul throughout the New Testament. And again, we, we don't have time this morning to go into all of that. I'm just simply pointing out why we do not read the, the Bible flatly, applying to every scripture the, the same, you see, you, you know what I'm saying. Hebrews chapter 8, get this now. A lot of people don't even know this is in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7 and verse 13. If the first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the old one obsolete. Well, that tells you right there that the old one being obsolete doesn't have the same weight, should not be taken in the same light that the new one should. It's important. Paul said all things have been given for your instruction. They're all profitable But you don't give them the same weight. In other words, you don't read them flatly. You see what I'm saying? I want to entertain this question. Why have so many left the church today and no longer find the Bible relevant to their lives? Well, the first reason is because they don't find the Bible relevant to their life they find it irrelevant. Now the Bible is complex. And while it was influenced by God, it is not dictated by God. I'm going to let that just kind of sit. How, how are we doing on time? Where, where I mean, am I even close? You've got to give me a little time this morning because we started roughly. I mean, is this helping anybody this morning? I mean, is it, are you finding it? Okay, I can see we're getting a little 40,000-foot a view of some of the things about our Bible. The Bible is complex, and while it was influenced by God, God breathed. It's not dictated by God. It reflects the humanity of the biblical authors and the times in which they lived. We've seen this in the teaching on slavery, violence and on the status and role of women, as well as many topics. If you read the Bible flatly, you will come away from it with all sorts of erroneous teachings, thoughts, and practices about a lot of different things, including slaves, women. Do you realize that in our country, in our nation, slaves were taken? Slavery was practiced? Based on the Bible, they thought, slave owners, thought they had scriptural right, moral right from God to own slaves. That's in the Bible. You can prove it from the Bible. Unless you take a position that we're not going to read our Bible with a flat understanding And that it has to be interpreted. It's a complex book that was influenced by God, but it also has the humanity of the biblical authors and the time in which they lived and so on and so forth. Most evangelicals adapted a message of, number one, right and wrong. We're talking about why. So many find the Bible irrelevant, okay? Because so many evangelicals adapted a message of right and wrong. How many books have you read that tell you what's right and what's wrong, how to live and how not to live, that you enjoy going back to you've read four or five times now? Well, how about your Bible? If you see it as a book of right and wrong, how often are you going to visit it, spend time with it, read it, memorize it, quote it, share it with others? If it's just a book of morals about right and wrong... Now, listen to this. This is from a book, a study, a whole system of study called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. This is... The de facto standard in most of the evangelical colleges, Bible colleges, across our nation. Listen, I quote The Bible contains all the words of God he intended for us to have. In other words, back of my New Testament, Revelation chapter 22 maybe. verse 21. 21 read that out loud sweetheart the grace of the lord jesus be with all amen after that word nothing nothing more can be considered as coming from god it ended there hmm interesting since Jesus said that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit would be to teach us all things, to lead, to guide us into all truth. Now I'm not saying that things that the Holy Spirit tell you rise to the level of canonical authority of the scriptures, but I am telling you this, the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. He is still using gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And and really, one of the most beautiful things about my Bible is that when I read it, the Holy Spirit takes it and illuminates it to me for my life, my circumstances, my understanding. I'm not talking about foundational cardinal doctrines and playing with those and being flippant and dismissive with those. I'm talking about the fact that this book is living, it's alive, it's not a rule book, it's a story. It's a progressive revelation from the creator about how our lives have been redeemed back into relationship with him. Here's another quote from this same individual in his system of study, systematic theology. De facto standard in all Bible colleges. All the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. End quote. Really? That's where when you come across things like the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, you start believing that's what God does in your life. He gave you suffering as part of his will. You read but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. If you don't translate, if you don't spend some time with that verse, if you, if you don't dig down into the culture of that, into the languages of that, in, into reading and studying after men and women of God who are theologians, who have written about that and the incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ and the value of that, you're going to run away with that and all your life, and I must admit, for the first couple decades of my own Christian walk I labored with that verse because I knew in my heart there were some people that I really 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 didn't like and I didn't want to forgive them I dare say there's probably some people in my life and in your life that you still are working on forgiving. Did you know? Did you know that as long as you harbor that unforgiveness, your sins are unforgiven? That's what you're going to believe with a flat reading of Scripture. All right. Western Western evangelicalism before one can receive and be transformed by the good news here is standard western evangelicalism before one can receive and be transformed by the good news they must believe in the infallibility and veracity of everything in the bible including each of the stories now I did not get that from Wayne, you know, Mr. Grudem or anybody else I pinned that and I think that's how I understood things I could not pray for you. I could not believe for a miracle in your life. Uh, Blessings weren't going to happen in your life unless you got saved, unless you started going to church, unless you gave up all those things in your life that are immoral. How's God going to bless you if you still have all that stuff going on in your life? I used to believe that, and so this book was a rule book for me. Where's the good news? All right, second reason so many have left the church today, violence, the violence they see in the scripture. Now, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from Adam Hamilton. He is a megachurch pastor in Kansas, and I quote, The Bible is the words of people who were influenced by God, and yet who were also shaped by the times in which they lived. The violence attributed to God in the Bible is a serious issue that Christians must address. It is inconsistent with the character of God described in many places of the Old Testament, and it's certainly inconsistent with the Word of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who calls us as followers to love their enemies. He continues, in the Hebrew Bible, we find God putting to death 70,000 Israelites to punish David for taking a census. We have God commanding Joshua to slaughter every man and woman and child in 31 entire kingdoms in the, Can- in the Canaan as a king of offering to God, as a kind of offering to God. This is what today we would call genocide. God commands priests to burn their daughters alive if they become prostitutes. I cannot imagine God calling me to burn one of my children alive, regardless of what they had done. Other ancient Near Eastern people believed their, believed their gods also called them to slaughter entire cities as an offering to their gods. So this seems to have been a common cultural understanding about the relationship between war and the gods. And dear ones, please don't think for a moment that that culture didn't also influence the times, the writings and the Bible writers own understanding of God and war. That's why we said last week, I don't have it on here, God is like Jesus. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time where God didn't look like Jesus. Period. And though we didn't always see him. Now we do because we have Jesus. Why have so many left the Bible? Why have so many? Why do so many turn away from its pages and leave church today? Because of a legal justice or conditional mercy. What I'll say about this is very simply. If you want me to use inerrancy in order to describe a religious book that preaches right and wrong, conformance and performance, and tells the story of God who is, in his holy anger, murdered his son on a cross in order to exact punishment for sin, all to satisfy his consuming desire for legal justice, you've come to the wrong place. But if what you mean by God-breathed and inspired is that the Bible reveals the person of Jesus Christ, the infallible, perfect, only begotten Son who became a human in order to condemn sin in the flesh, rise from the dead, and become the perfect example of who you and I are today and how we can live, then you have come to the right place. And the final reason that people no longer trust the Bible and have turned from its pages is because of the sin of certainty. To use Francois' terminology, the scriptures are not a place for us to go window shopping for promises that we can then manipulate through presumptuous faith for the purpose of acquiring and satisfying our daily appetites. Rather, it is the scandalous love story that reveals our original place and innocence in God her position and oneness with the divine trinity and how God stopped at nothing in order to redeem us and reconcile us back to himself. Not counting our sins against us and bringing us once again into a face-to-face relationship with himself. And that's what he meant when he uttered those words on the cross. It is finished. I did it. You know, I just happen to believe Jesus was successful. I just happen to believe that the cross was successful. I believe that what God started out to do in Genesis, and then because of Adam's sin, had to introduce a plan to redeem, and that He did, and His name is Jesus, was successful. So you might ask me, well, so, Pastor Jeff, what is God's Word? Then in our life, what is it good for? God's Word is the mirror of who we are, not who we hope to be, or not who you're going to be when you get to heaven. The Bible is God's love story of redemption of bringing you back into face-to-face relationship with himself, and then it unfolds to us what you and I are and can be. In Luke 24, verse 45, there were some disciples who were walking on a road, going into town. Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to them. And it says here that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And Philip then joins, we have another example of this, a chariot of the chief treasurer, and he asks him, Sir, do you understand what you are reading? This chariot was also going into a town. He was reading from the scrolls of Isaiah. Philip joined him and said sir do you understand look at this then he opened their minds to understand Philip joins the guy in the chariot and says do you understand what you were reading did you know it's possible to read the right book and get the wrong message has that ever occurred to us that we've got the right book But we often get the wrong message. This gentleman in the chariot was getting the wrong message and God had to send Philip to him to correct it, to open his what? Understanding. Jesus appeared to two of the disciples who were walking on the road one day going into town and they were talking about the scriptures And Jesus knew their thoughts and what they were talking about. And that they were totally misunderstanding why he had come. So he opened their minds to the scriptures. Dear ones, is it possible that today we need our minds opened? We need help understanding the scriptures. And it's not wrong to read after other godly men and women to read after commentators, to study the works of theologians. It's not wrong. Dear ones, listen to me. It is not just you and your Bible. As long as you take that position, you will misunderstand. You say, well, I have the Holy Spirit. Well, these gentlemen had the Holy Spirit available to them. This chariot had the ho- this gentleman in the chariot had the Holy Spirit available to him. But God uses human instrumentality. To speak to us the words of the Holy Spirit. We need both. We need help to understand. Francois Dutrois said this. The destiny of the Logos was not to be caged in a book or a doctrine. But to be documented and unveiled in human life. Isn't that beautiful? Now watch this. Andre Reb. I made a note regarding Andre. Let me see. He is a teacher and author, and one of his books that he wrote is called The Word Made Flesh. He said, long before the first line of Scripture was pinned on papyrus scroll, the Word, unwritten, existed as the mind of God. Before the books were gathered and collated as sacred text, the Word, intangible, invisible, was planning he was ordering the ages that were to come this word predates the bible this word predates creation this word is alive and active and speaking still today in my life and in your life thank god for the bible but god is not absent from this book he is not absent from your life he is still speaking he is still helping us to understand the beautiful things in this book. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, from the mirror translation, and we all, with new understanding, with new, read it, we all, with new understanding, see ourselves in him as in a mirror. Thus we are changed from an inferior mindset to the revealed opinion of our true origin. You say, man, but that's that mirror Bible. That's that paraphrase. That's just another man's thoughts. Okay. Well let's take something more traditional. Here's James chapter one, verse twenty-three, from the Passion Bible. A, A modern but pretty literal Greek type of text. If you listen to the word and don't live out the message you hear, you become like the person who looks in the mirror of the word to discover the reflection of his face in the beginning. You perceive how God sees you in the mirror of the word but then you go out and you forget your divine origin of who God made you to be. This book is all about showing me who I am in Christ. Whenever I open its pages, I had somebody at lunch tell me, you know what, I used to read the Bible and get under such condemnation. I'd come across passage after passage, and it would just put me under condemnation, and then all day long, I'd be trying to pray my way out of that. And you know, Pastor Jeff, with the help of some of your teaching, now... When I read something and I just feel condemnation, this individual said, I close it. (laughs) Okay. But he said, now what I've learned to do is I've learned to go through the scripture and see that it's a mirror showing me who I am in Christ, showing me that it's the love story of who God has made me to be in Christ. I love that. God breathed. It's kind of where we started. God breathed. God breathed. Could I ask you to consider a new, a new look of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? Consider this. So the breath of God as portrayed in the Hebrew Scriptures is all about life-giving and restoration. For instance, when, when God originally created Adam and Eve, When he created Adam, what did he do? What was his first act with Adam? He stood him up and he, he breathed into Adam the what? Breath of life. And all throughout scriptures, you're going to see this, even when it comes to the judgment of God. Judgment in even the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew word, is restorative, never punitive. Punitive. If all of Scripture is God-breathed, and it is, or breathed out by God, and it is, as some translations say, this means that the author of 2 Timothy believed that the Scriptures had been made alive by God. It isn't inerrancy that's the subject or foundation of 2 Timothy. It's that God breathed the Bible to allow the text to speak of the compelling Beautiful idea that it was made alive by God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says that the word of God is living, powerful. Shows us our thoughts. The destiny of the Bible was not a book. It was a living epistle. Get this one. A living epistle. I passed it. You yourselves are the endorsement we need. Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read by just looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone, but carved into human lives, and we publish it. Isn't that beautiful?